Our DT Systems, the Wrap 1400 or 1400 if you like doing it that way, but it's the Wrap 1400. It's a collar that is super reliable, ready to rock, and it's super handy because you can hold it in your hand while you're shooting your shotgun during duck season. So it's a cool unit for you and your dog come hunting season so that you've got control over any situation. Anything the dog throws at you during the hunt is right there, easy and accessible. Bingo, bango, bongo. If you don't want that one, check out the H. 201820. It's the DT Systems and it's dog tested, dog tough. Hashtag man's best kennel, baby. That's Gunner Kennels. Man, let's talk about these crates because when it hits the fan, you want your dog protected. It's an investment emotionally and financially to keep your hunting buddy safe. If you'd like to get into a Gunner Kennel, slide into the DMs and we'll hook you up. But do your best friend a favor and keep them safe this duck season. It's force fetch, baby. It's the number one question we get asked. You don't know how to fix it? Let me help you. Let me get you to your goals. We built a course, bunch of videos. I think there's 13 or 14 videos start to finish on how you and your dog can get through the force fetch process successfully. The link's in the description. Be sure to check it out and let me help you and your dog. What's going on, everybody? This is Bob Owens from Lone Ducks, Gun Dog Chronicles. We got Kevin Owens on the line up in New York. I'm down in Charleston, South Carolina. We got a very special guest tonight. I'm excited to introduce you to. But first, let's give a quick thank you to our sponsors. You know who they are. We've got Yukonuba. Yukonuba, baby. Um, the 3020 Sporting Blend is what most of my kennels are on. We got a few on adult, and we got the young dogs under 24 months on our puppy blend. Everybody's doing well. We transitioned over about, what do you think, Kev, eight, nine months ago? Yeah, something like that. Uh, maybe, if not, even a little bit earlier, but the dogs have been doing really well. Yeah, Kevin and good. three dogs are doing great on it. Our whole kennel's impressive on it. We've got puppies, like little, little baby puppies. Uh, was safe, and they're transitioning from mother's milk to the gruel here soon, so that'll be exciting. Next up, we got Gunner Kennel, safest kennel on the market. Hey, man's best friend deserves man's best kennel. Give us a shout if you're interested in learning more and getting into one. And lastly, Waypoint Outdoor Collective. These guys help us with our analytics and they've also got a bunch of great podcasts that you can tune into in the outdoor industry. So check out Waypoint Outdoor Collective. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to a good friend of mine, okay? And I learned a little bit about him. He sent me some little tidbits to teach you about. So from the age of 8 to 18, he competed in the cattle world and had over 300 wins or championships under his belt at a young age. Seven Super Retriever Series Crown Champions he made and, and got the titles on, baby. 175 Master Hunters, and 35 of those, 35, are in the Master National Hall of Fame. Everybody, I'd like to welcome Lyle Steinman from Castile Creek Kennels. Hey, Lyle, thank you so much for being a part of our show. Tell everybody a little bit more about yourself, and we'll get right into it. <laughs> Well, thank you, Bob and Kevin, for having me on. It's uh, 
busy schedule for you guys and busy schedule with us and and so you know just getting ready to start the year out we're in uh the boys and i are in natchez mississippi till you know sometime early april uh getting ready for the uh, the rest of the year so no just uh another another winter trip uh i have to guess how many there is there's been a bunch of them let's put it that way a lot of winter trips so but no, so, just so where are you where do you guys originate from well the main kennel is around Gallagher, missouri which is uh about 30 minutes from kci airport and exactly 58 miles from the uh 2019 super bowl champion kansas city chiefs <laughs> you just had to throw it in there <laughs> Hey, it's been a long time coming now. I hear you. I hear you. Um, and then your wintering grounds. What, what do you got there? We're in Natchez, Mississippi, and and we come down here a couple of years ago for an SRS event, and and we were on Oakwood Plantation, one of the oldest plantations in, in Mississippi, and we met met Mr. Jack and Miss Sandra, and he was an old cattle boy like I was, and. And then we, we've got a lot of close friends like Leo Joseph family and Stuart Williams and Jared Moffat and all those guys are, are good friends. Uh, and basically, this is kind of like our South family. So uh, we've enjoyed our time here the last year or so. And and we're trying, we're getting ready to make an offer on a house here in Natchez. So when we come, we've got some place to stay. But no, the grounds are the grounds are unbelievable. The water, you know, on the main plantation, there's 22 ponds. Uh, Mr. Jack, when he gets bored, digs a hole in the ground, and <laughs> so he, you know, he's quite a quite a quite a fellow. He is. That's unbelievable. When you're looking for good training grounds, what are some features you're looking at? Oh, uh, there's. On Oakwood Plantation and, and the surrounding property that Mr. Jack and Sandra own, um, you can go six, seven, eight hundred yards on a mark, and I oh, mean wow. not not flat as a football. I mean rolly hills, and I think you know a lot of times you can go on my my Castile Creek Kennels Facebook page. We try and put daily setups on there, but I think we were running three fifty, four hundred today as the crow flies. Um, that didn't show the terrain and, and things like that, but no, it, it. What is nice is it compliments when we go home to train uh different grounds different water <clears throat> excuse me it just uh it just enhances what we do you know the rest of the year sure what are your grounds like at your home kennel your main base the main kennel excuse me sorry uh the main kennel's 40 acres where we train and then we've got surrounding properties we use and then we go to the family farm, which is about 800 acres north of the kennels, about 30 minutes. Uh, and we've got seven pieces of water on that, 40 acres and uh, four tech ponds on that. Oh, beautiful. That's awesome. So I'd like to get to know you a little bit. I mean, we've met several times. We've had mm-hmm. conversations over the phone. But I want to know, you know, in your little bio you sent me, you know, from 8 to 18, you were working with animals and working with cows and showing them. Is that where your love of animals and, and training came about? I Yeah, it being a farm boy, um, I was the last generation to farm. So I guess I killed <laughs> killed the first five or six. But, you know, at, at six or seven, uh, my mom and my dad both showed Herefords, heifers and steers all over the country. And 
so at six or seven, I'd go to the go to the barn, and when I turned eight, I had twenty to twenty-five show steers uh, that I took care of every morning and night, and it was all day, you know, all the time getting them ready to go. And uh, I guess the work ethic that my grandfather instilled in me it, it still works today. And you don't have to be the best at what you do; you just got to work hard and and work a little harder than, than the next person. And, and, you know, showing all those steers against guys that are two and three times my age, uh, I guess that's where I started getting the ice in my veins and was not intimidated. Uh, you know, if I couldn't win, I'd, I'd work at it harder and harder and harder. And that, that's basically what I still do today and preach today. Yeah. One of, one of your main things that I, I admire is work ethic. Right. Like, like you said, and, and actually for me, I, I relate this to, to college sports, um, playing rugby. I wasn't the biggest, fastest or strongest, but man, I was, you know, running after dinner, you know, before we went to bed and I'd be up before everybody going to the gym. And I just, I worked really hard and I loved pushing people to work harder. And that's something that I see in you is that work ethic and is that professionalism that pushes you to be the best. And then, you know, your record stands, you are a record setter actually for the master national, aren't you? Yes, sir. So, I mean, proof is in the pudding that work, work ethic can get you further than talent when talent doesn't work hard. Whoever said that, May, pretend I'm, I quote that. That's my, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's and, and, and you're right. That, that is, um, yeah, I mean, anything, I don't care what you do, it's a work ethic. You got to get up every morning, go to work, and do your job. That, that's the bottom line, whatever it may be, you know, and, and that's that's what's instilled in me, and, you know, that's what pushes me. And, you know, you've got to be motivated in different ways, and, and even I have to be motivated, you know, sometimes. So it's just not I wake up every morning and I want to go do it. it it's it's There's still – you know, I've got 2020 goals that I've wrote down and I look at them every day, both sides of that note card, you know, cool. why are we here and what are we doing? Absolutely. Can you share with us what that note card might say? <laughs> uh, it's changed over the course of years. Okay. Um, let me see if I can figure out what I did with it now. There it is. I found it. Um, well, of course, anything short of winning a crown championship, we've failed. Okay. okay. Um, I want to qualify 10 dogs for the crown. Love my wife more. Spend more time with my kids. More lake time. You know, so I got to work harder through the week so I can go to the lake. Um, <clears throat> a couple other things that are on there that that sure. that I won't reveal is just yeah, um, my motivation, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Um, Actually, we had a question about that um, from one of our, our followers and listeners is. You know, Blaine Taranaki and I talked about this on one of our podcasts we called The Grind, and it was, you know, probably two hours of us just telling people, how many times have you heard in your career, man, I want to be a dog trainer? And, and we kind of just talked about it, you know, a day in the life, 
And what people don't understand is it, it's sometimes really difficult to balance life and family outside of the dogs and our job. And, you know, I'm sure over the course of your years doing this as a professional, you've what has that been like? Have you had hard times where it's hard to balance? How have you found balance? Have you found balance? Um, yeah, I mean, um, anybody that thinks they want to be a dog trainer needs to have their head examined, okay? Um, I mean, my clients, and they'll all tell you this, they are a hundred times smarter than me, Okay. And I tell them, if I could read and write, I wouldn't be a dog trainer. Okay? okay. And God God only gave me one ability. Okay? And this is it. And my wife can build a house from the ground up. I can't even plug in a toaster. I got enough trouble <laughs> charging my electric collars up. Okay? So everybody has something they're good at. They just need to go do it. And mine has always been to be a dog trainer. I mean, since running coon hounds, I love running coon hounds when I was in high school. I mean, I would hunt all night, go to school, come home, go to sleep, and go hunt, you know, with coon hounds, and I love the dogs. And if you can read a dog in the dark, you can read him if you can see him. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that's kind of where, you know, my youngest daughter is going to graduate in May in three years from college and she was he hung around about going to this school at central methodist university where brett went with yukonuba oh yeah and we were we were steph and i were were gone for a couple days and was getting ready to make a decision where you want to go to this college or not and i guess this best describes it and my youngest daughter has seen more crown championships than most of my competitors and she knows how it works and I finally made the comment. I said, you know how many crowns we won, right? Yes, Dad. I said, I would give up all of those crowns if you'll go to school there. And she goes, well, I said, sometimes you got to choose. That's my choice. So a couple hours later, she calls me back and she goes, Dad, I'm going to go to school. Dad. Cool. Yeah, it, it's it's. Success comes at a price. And the thing with me, Bob and Kevin, is I am not untouchable. If you've got a question, and I do this all the time, if you've got a question, call me. If I can't answer it right there, we'll go find the answer together, okay? Mm-hmm. But it's – because I, if, I, if I'm not learning something every day in training, then I need to quit. And that comes from a Hall of Fame dog trainer. If you're not learning something every day about dog training, then you need to get out because you're done. You know, you you find that dog that teaches you something, okay? Um, and I mentor a lot of other trainers. And one of them is a very, very good dog trainer. And he called me. And he goes, can I ask you something? I said, sure. He had young children. I think they were five and six, five and seven. And he goes, can I make a living training dogs at home? I said, as good as you are, yes, you can. 
He said, okay. And he goes, and he kept, well, do you think I needed to go on the road and all this? And I said, okay, you called me, right? Yep. So the next egotistical statement out of my mouth is, remember, you called me. I didn't call you. He goes, okay. I said, I want you to think about this. And this is for every young dog trainer out there. Years from now, do you want your children's children to remember you? Or do you want to take a chance, go on the road, run hunt tests, run SRSs, run field trials, and maybe years from now, you'll be remembered? That's an interesting concept. I said, call me back in a week and tell me what you decided. So he called me about a week later and he goes, I thought about what you said. I said, yeah, some of my records will never be broken. I hope they are because that motivated somebody to go do it. But he says, I want my children's children to remember me. It's a good choice. Always remember success. there's, There's a price to pay. Success always costs something. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, it's, it's, yeah, winter trips, you guys have been them. They stink. Summer trips, they stink. You know, you're away from your family. You can't sleep in your own bed, you know. Uh, and I was telling the boys the other day, I remember winter trips the past, staying in places that I'm not going to stay at today. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I paid, I paid my price. I'm not staying in them places. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Tell me about coon hunting. Is Were those some of the first dogs you've hunted over, or did you have retrievers as well growing up? Uh, no, I, I had, we had cattle dogs and basset hounds and that kind of stuff. And, you know, it, it, I, I, my neighbor, one of my classmate, classmates, uh, Kelly Hill's grandfather, Kermit, lived down the road from me. Kermit Hill lived, well, not very far. And he was one of the finest trappers you could ever see. And I go, will you teach me how to trap? He goes, absolutely. And so he taught me how to trap coons, and that lasted a couple of years. And I was probably middle school. And I go, I want to try that coon hunting thing. So Don Shottle Sr. was a coon hunter around me, and he says, my son coon hunts. He's a veteran. And so he was Don Shottle Jr. So he took me coon hunting the first couple of times, and that was it. That's all it took. I was hooked. So I had coon hounds growing up in high school and um, night hunt championships and competitions. And, you know, I was hooked. I mean, I, it was uh, Stephanie, my wife, even with me on a lot of these coon hunts. You know, just it was it was just pure adrenaline rush. Until this day, I, I, you know, still love doing it. And, you know, there's a ton of stories about all of that. And then I went into uh, bird dogs. Okay. Okay. Uh, horseback bird dogs okay yep that didn't last long because i hate horses okay with a passion all they want to do is fall down and try and kill you and i said you know i'm going to do something different that i don't have to ride one of these nags i said i love all those guys that do it and i want like watch seeing it but i'm not getting on no horse so my first mentor sonny ellison sold me a black lab puppy for 150 bucks and that would have been Mid-80s, I guess it would be. So I trained him and worked him, and he could run blinds, but he literally couldn't find a hot dog and a tote. 
mean, he no couldn't way. mark anything. No, he couldn't mark. He could run a blind, but he couldn't. He couldn't. But Sonny was a great teacher of blinds. He taught me what the thought process of behind water blinds and land blinds and what dogs think. Uh, so I figured out fairly quickly I didn't have enough horsepower. So okay. I made a call to, to Becky Eckett and Bill Eckett <clears throat> yeah. at uh, this interview. And Becky goes, I think I got a dog for you. So I went down, and that's where I trained with Becky quite a bit, and I watched Bill train. But they really taught me the marking concepts to go along with Sonny, who taught me all the blind concepts. So they kind of went hand in hand. So that's kind of where my roots came from. And then I just started training and my younger days, dog-wise, figured out fairly quickly, I don't have enough horse. I need more horsepower. Gotcha. So that's when I started, you know, doing that. And then just slowly, you know, my grandfather wanted to build a pond. And I said, hey, can you build it like this? I don't know if it was one of the first tech ponds in the state, but it's pretty close. But it was had an island. It had legs on it. It had points on it. I didn't know what we were doing, but he wanted to fish. And, I wanted to train dogs, so uh, I wanted to train dogs. Grandpa wanted to fish my tech pond every day, so that's how that relationship started. Sounds cool. So were the Eckets your earliest mentor, and did you go to work for somebody and and learn that way, or just through attrition, learning different dogs and learning that way? You know, I bought my family's guttering company. I was in a car business for a few years. And then I bought my family's guttering company, and that allowed me to go to the gutter company, get the crews off, and then I'd drive to, to Eckett's place. I'd train, and it was 78 miles from Eckett's to my house. I remember it. And I could drive it basically blindfolded. But I never went to work for anybody. I just I, – I trained. I had the luxury of having other income. Mm-hmm. And then all early 2000s, and I remember who it was, called me and said, hey, I know you're going to this hunt test. Would you take my dog and run it for me? That was the stupidest thing I ever did was say yes. <laughs> was that? I go, oh, every once in a while I see him, I tell him I like to kill him sometimes. Uh, but that's that's where it all started uh, was, hey, would you take my dog to a hunt test? Nah, thanks. That's super cool. That's super cool. Would you give advice to someone who who maybe does want to jump into it to go and work for someone first instead of maybe doing it the way you did it? Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I threw a lot of birds. Don't get me wrong. Okay. With Sonny. And I mean, I'm not very good. My arm's not very good anymore, but I threw a lot of birds. You can learn a lot of things by throwing birds. You can watch dogs and see what their thought process is. Because, I mean, dogs are like blueprints. They all got a hunt pattern. You just got to figure it out. Um, they've all got tendencies, what they do and what they're not going to do. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a, you know, find a, find a top kennel and call them and say, hey, can I throw birds for you? You know, um, you know, can I learn or whatever? I mean, do it, do it while you're young. Um, is the, and it's not for everybody, but that'll give you a taste of, Hey, it's for me or it's not. Right. 
you know, and, and that, that's probably the biggest thing is you, you've got to find a job that, that isn't a job and whatever it is. Yeah, I agree. If, even if it's, you know, if it's not dog training, it's writing for the newspaper or starting a, a t-shirt company like I did nine years ago or something, you know, start something that, that fuels your fire and you're going to be good at it. Because yeah, you're, you're, love you're, it. you're right. You're driving, you're determined. And again, Bobby and Kevin, it doesn't be good at whatever you're doing. And I mean, a lot of things too is, you know, amateur wise. I mean, I, what, what a little bit of misconception is, is amateur trainers. I, I couldn't do what some of these guys do. Some of the top amateur trainers that have a full-time job, come home, go train dogs, eat in dark, go to work. I mean, these, I couldn't do it. I don't think I could work a full-time job, come home and train two or three or four dogs. No, I agree. I say that as well. I, I can't I mean, remember the days where you get home from work and try and do family stuff and it's impossible to balance it all and make a dog great. It, it's, it's a extremely tough, difficult balancing, balancing it, it. That's the thing, balance, you know, uh, but those guys are, I mean, you know, I'm at a test and an amateur's got a question. You bet you I'll answer it. May not be the correct answer. It's just what, what I'm seeing through my eyes, you know, but no, these guys are, they're workers now. They're not, they're, you know, some of them top amateurs hunt test wise and SRS wise. Oh my, you know. Absolutely. In your eyes, who, who are some of the top amateurs in the SRS right now? Um, because we're about to get, you know, kick off at least in the southeast. Um, with, I think February is one, and then in March I'm going to be running one. Yeah, you know, you you've got Mike Gibson. I talked to Mike yesterday, I think. With you know, Jeter? Mike is. Yeah, Mike Gibson's. You know, you you've got to say. I mean, Mike's a. I mean, he works a full time job, and on his lunch break he goes does drills. I mean, a guy like that, he always scared me with Jeter and. And, and, you know, when the amateurs and the pros ran together, and there's several times, I mean, I, I knew where Jeter was, and he about got me that one year. He was going to get us that year, and he just had a boo-boo and kept driving to the to the fence, and they couldn't get him back. Uh, I remember that because he, he was there. Uh, so, you know, and, and you take uh, the amateurs right now, I mean, oh, I'm glad they play in their own division. I mean, they're, they're tough. I mean, but you take a guy with two dogs. We got to train 2024. They got two. They scare me. You know, um, you know, Ron Anderson's been very successful. I don't want to leave anybody out. Sure not. uh, Down here, down here in Mississippi and Louisiana, uh, you know, you got a lot of boys out of Arkansas. I mean, that, those amateurs, uh, that's rough. You know, um, you know, Randy Price does a great job. I mean, uh, Tommy Harp's rebuilding, I think, right now, dog-wise. But you know, there's a there's a tremendous handler. Um, trying to think who else. You know, uh, AJ's got an up-and-coming young dog, and he's judged quite a bit. So I mean, he's he's a threat. You know, and you got Stuart Williams is tough, and uh, Jared Moffat's always a threat. Jared's got a young dog that Leo's working that uh, that I've watched her, and yeah, I'd own her. Oof, she's nice dog. So, I mean, there's, there's, um, you know, I don't, I don't think I left anybody out. I'm sure I will. And I apologize, but there, there's, there's some, whew, there's some nice, nice dogs out there. And there's some, some great handlers. Great handlers. Nice. 
All right, so Lyle, that, that transitions nicely into this question. Uh, a gentleman named Jay Schwab, thank you for your question, buddy. He said he's got a, a really strong foundation with his dog, and he's working on advanced training and taking his dog to the next level. But he's a solo trainer. He he is going out after work, just like we're talking about. You know, do you have things that you could offer him as far as drills go or way to Maybe he doesn't have wingers or thunder launchers. What would you do if you if you were this guy to go out and try and build your dog in a more advanced way? Whew, that that's whew. and maybe it is. Hey, invest in a winger. I mean, he he's nothing will ever beat a person in the field. Nothing. You can buy five wingers and all this stuff, but you you know. Go find a neighbor kid who needs 10 bucks an hour or 20 bucks for throwing birds. You're going to have to find somebody that can throw, you know, Saturday or Sunday for you for a little bit because you're going to have to throw. I mean, the game has evolved so much that if you can't go three and four and 500 yards or farther, um, blinds and marks, um, you got a long road to hoe. Okay. I'm not saying it's impossible. Uh, but yeah, I'm with you. So, all right. So that's good advice. Now he did find his neighbor kid. What do you, you know, again, this is from him. So I'm trying to help him out. What are you having that bird boy or girl throwing birds do so that he can get that dog out there and concepts he should look at when he's looking at grounds and water? What are you kind of analyzing to advance that dog? We'll throw nothing but singles. Okay. Uh, at various distance, whether it be 20 yards, 100 yards. But if it's a young dog, you're going to have to start working up to 100, 150 yards and start stretching that dog out, you know, to go to 300 to 400. And then you've got to have factors. You've got to have some grounds to train on. You might find, you know, uh, a good professional trainer around you that is good. I mean, and that may be hard to do. I don't know what area you're in. But go out and say, hey, can I throw birds for you on Saturday morning? Or, you know, can you help me, you know, kind of deal and kind of mow grass for you or or something like that. That's kind of things that I did. You know, what can I do to help you to make your life easier if you could help me? Uh, and, and there's there's pro trainers that love to have someone come out and help them. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, We're tired I mean, of talking dogs all day. Well, yeah. And, I mean, you just, you know, it's like. We talk football all the time, Dennis and I do. When Dennis and I are throwing, you know, he's usually reading the ESPN app or whatever, and he say, hey, did you hear this or that? And, you know, it, it's it's communication or finding someone that you can work well with, and uh, but you you're gonna have to you're gonna have to have some help. So when you just when you said factors, tell people what you mean by factors to um, that would challenge a young dog. Hills, rolling hills, uh, sloping ditches. Uh, terraces, uh, cornfields, um, you know, just various things like that. Find different grounds, drive around and find hay fields that just been freshly cut with big hay bales in them. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's, that's some things that I would, would work on. Um, try and find, like we're going to do a seminar in July at the North Kennels, uh, attend some seminars uh, from trainers. 
Absolutely. Well, I pick up something to read or I watch, you know, I study all the time is whether you like that person or that trainer or not, respect what they've accomplished. Does that make sense? It, it, it's kind of like trying, you know, um, high school football. Well, I want to, if I'm a high school football coach, I want to watch a Super Bowl coach who's coached the big games and has been there. I want to watch a junior high football coach. Don't go back, go forward, okay, is what I'm getting at. But there's there's some seminars, there's some some quality, you know, DVDs to look at, to study. Uh, that That's, you know, anything you can pick up, it's helpful. So we had another question. Uh, her name is Lauren Marotta, and it goes back to kind of a drill mentality. A lot of the questions I got, and I may not touch on them because – these your answers are encompassing several people's questions mm-hmm. um but her question was best advice for an amateur to train at a professional standard and then asked drills so okay. a professional standard maybe define that in your eyes what that dog looks like from the average you know you're at a hunt test and you're running master level dog and you're seeing an amateur dog versus a dog off of your truck what are the differences you're seeing um, line manners, um, how much that dog's been worked. I mean, every dog's not going to pass every test, but I can tell a dog who hasn't been trained for three or four or five days compared to one that's been worked. Okay. And, and look at your drills, holding blind girls. We're big on holding blind girls. We do holding blind girls every day. Okay. And I'll run one, two or three dogs at one time, depending upon the setup. But it, the holding blind drill is where everything starts. If you don't have control in that holding blind, you're, you don't have any control anywhere. Can you describe okay. what that holding blind drill looks like? To people? What I what I do is uh, Lou McGee makes the best holding blinds I've seen. And there's a four-pole holding blind. And what I do is I put the holding blind uh, in a U-shape. And I tell the dog to kill. Okay. And that dog starts from a young dog all the way to advancement. Everything's a holding blind drill. Because what's the, what's the last thing you're going to do at a test or an SRS with a field truck? You're in a holding blind. Right. If you can't control him there and in training, don't run him. Don't enter. Okay? So that's the first thing we do. And then we use rubber mats because it's easier to stand on just for us, you know. Um Marking drills, there's a lot of Y marking drills. Bill Hillman has a lot of great marking drills. Um, there's there's so many drills that you can do as far as marking drills and bucket drills. You know, like today for the young dogs, we're throwing a white five-gallon bucket with a duck in it at, I think it was 200 yards, I think, between three holding blinds. So you got to look through three holding blinds to look to the long gun. Mm-hmm. So, so you put the duck in the five-gallon bucket, throw yep. the bucket, the duck flops out, but the yep. dog is marking that white bucket. Absolutely. Oh, you can see that bucket like a bathtub at that distance. So if I do can. it a little differently. That's interesting. I do like a white milk jug with sand in it, and I'll yep. have the duck out there already on the ground, and you, you can throw do that. the white, white milk jug. So similar idea, yeah. Yeah, when I go to big marks at six to 800 yards, I got a boat bumper buoy with weights on the end. Cool. It looks like a, I don't know what you call it, it looks like a 50-gallon barrel flying out of there. 
you, if you if you can't see it, you can't market. Absolutely. Uh, this and the biggest thing is just hold your standard high. You know, there you go. Um, the biggest thing I think people make mistakes at is running a dog before it's even remotely ready. I agree with that. I, mean, I think that's I, probably one of the number one reasons people fail is they try I agree. it, right? Like they try, we're going to try it this weekend. Yeah, we're going to try it. No, we're going to go and freaking win that thing. Well, yeah, exactly. And that, that's what you, you know, I had a guy several years ago, had a four month old puppy and he, and of course in the HRC program, you know that you can run the dog at any age, correct? I mean, I think, right. but at AKC wise, you got to wait till they're six months of age. So he, he sent me a video of this pup, and this pup was doing nice work. And he goes, well, I'm going to run that dog, you know, next weekend at, a, at an event. I said, really? I said, uh, do you know where your UKC and AKC papers are? He goes, yeah. I said, have you loaded them on Entry Express or Hunt Secretary? No, I haven't done that yet. I said, okay, I need for you to do this. I need for you to go get them, but don't look at them. And I want you to put them in an envelope and mail them to me. Well, what for? I said, that way you can't enter the dog till I tell you it's ready. That's awesome. And he laughed. He goes, point taken. It, it's, this thing is a marathon. Everybody thinks it's a sprint. It's kind of like one of the biggest questions they ask. Go, What's the youngest master hunter you ever made? I don't know. Who cares? Right. What's the youngest Hall of Fame dog I made? I can tell you that. Okay. It, it's, it's people hear about a two or three year old phenom and then years down the road, you don't hear anything about it. Right. It, it, it's, it's like right now, this program is a lot like a major college football program. We're, we're not rebuilding, we're reloading. Okay, we're looking for the future. Those great coaches, and that's kind of what professional dog trainers are, they're coaches. We're always looking for the next Jack, River, Coot, okay? We're looking for that that next one. I know I am. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I got today. I'm worried about two and three and four years from now. I agree with you. Um, here's another question from uh, Matt Johnston. Uh, he wants to transition from hunt tests and try field trials. He's never ran a field trial and he's looking at running a queue. What are some training concepts that he's going to see in a queue that he didn't see at master that he needs to address and work on? And how do you work on it? Um, I was trained by field trials, but and I've ran a, a fair amount of field trials, not a lot, but a fair amount. Okay. But I've always had the mentality of training like a field trialer, distances, tightness, uh, that kind of thing. So if you're, say, for instance, you're running the Masters and you are watching the other 60, 90 dogs, whatever it is in this flight, and your dog is, your dog is one of the better dogs in that Master group. Okay, consistently being in the top 10%. Then you have an animal 
that I would say is quality worthy of that. Okay. Uh, then what you're going to have to start doing is you're going to start using white coats. You're still using retired guns like a hunt test. Uh, your level of expectation, your standard has to start increasing. Because you can go to a qualifying that's an amateur open qualifying, or you go to a qualifying that's a master test. You just never know what you're going to get. Right. Absolutely. Uh, I ran one with Memphis uh, two years ago, and she was, A, to your point, too young. And I did the old, but we're going to try it. And we didn't make it out of the first, but neither did 80% of everyone else. And I walked up to there, to the line, you know, and they're doing test dog. And I'm like, well, that's it. I, I already, I already knew we were done, right? It was a 400 yard, 500 yard long gun at Cooper Black, uh, retired gun over here, uh, a bird over there, and she didn't even look out. I mean, it was ugly. And I think, at least for me, because I'm not, I, I'm not a field trialer, and I'd like to play the game with Memphis because, like you said, she's in that top 10 percent or 5 percent mm-hmm. when we're at a weekend test, but you know, their retired guns would be a concept to teach and show, um, have two shorter guns with a real long gun out there where they look past Mm -hmm. the white coat short and look out long and can, and not focus just on the short birds. And that's what got her the first time around. Um, Hey Bob, can you explain what a retired gun is? Yeah. Why don't you take that away, buddy? Well, what, what you do is you've got a, a huntess holding blind out there, okay? And you've got your bird thrower in white, and he steps out, he shoots, throws the bird, and then he retires behind the holding blind where the white coat disappears. Basically, he goes and hides. He goes and hides, yes. And, like, today, if you go look at our setup today, what we did today was we we had a, and that's where Lou McGee makes mannequin holding blinds. And we had kind of a dual type setup today. We had four marks and one blind. And, and basically we had one of my throwers sitting in a chair at probably 75 yards. Okay. And then off to that right shoulder at 350, 400 is two white stick men throwing. So you had to look through the short gun to get to the long gun. Mm-hmm. And what we did on the other mark was, is we had a white t-shirt on a hanger. We, we hooked it on the holding blind. Dennis stepped out, popped through the bird. The dog watched him retire, and he pulled the white T-shirt off the hanger and hit it behind it. So what we're doing is we're teaching retired guns, no matter if it was a seven-year-old dog or a two-year-old dog. Absolutely. And we're demanding that dog to stay on the right side of the gun station. How do you work on that? We start with a concept on Monday and end up on Saturday with, with that building, okay? You, we, we've seen some dogs today that flared the short gun to get to the long gun. And so what we do is I do not like to apply a lot of pressure. If it is, it's low-level pressure. But say, for instance, you've got a bird that's thrown left or right, 
and the dog starting to backside, which is go to the left side of the holding blind or the stick man or the thrower. And what what people, it's I can't teach the correct timing, but that's probably the most critical thing is when to, and what I do is when the dog's getting ready to backside the gun, if it's a young dog, I have been a step out and help that dog stay on the right station right side because you've got outside in markers and inside out markers and it's very important that you understand what your dog is okay but if a dog is going to go on the back side of a gun station wait till that dog commits all the way to behind it hit a whistle take a deep breath depending upon the, the ability of that dog i apply a little bit of pressure and bring the dog back to where it made the mistake and then I give a no hands back. That way, the dog is making a decision on what to do, not me for it. I'm with you. So I'm going to try and help people understand and maybe I'm, gonna, I'm just going to try and break it down. So dog's running. Uh-huh. Your bird is thrown left to right. And they're running out, and they're making a bad life choice, and they're going to the left of the yes. gun station. Okay? Correct. And that is called backsiding a gun. Okay. Yes, sir. The correct decision would have been to go straight to the bird, or at least stay to the right of the holding blind and gunner, your like you know bird thrower, and hunt the correct side. So what Lyle's saying to do is, depending on the ability level of the dog, if it's a young dog, he's going to have that bird boy go out and help to keep them on the correct side of the gun and teach without pressure or, and even, even if you're not using e-collar pressure, that tweet here is still a form of it. Would you agree? Correct. Correct. Because you've got some dogs. Okay. If you've got an older dog, that that's that dog's hole is doing that. Then I'm going to make sure you understand. I've about had enough of that. Okay. But if you've got a younger dog that you go, okay, I need to turn this down to a one. Okay. Here. No, here. Okay. I don't like to read. Once in a while, I'll recall a dog all the way back to the line, but I don't like to. Okay. That's a good addition to that comment. And, nice. and I do, I do not, do not rerun marks or blinds. Okay. All right. So let's, I'm going to write that down because I want to touch on that. Okay. Um, but now the, def- Please describe the no hands back, and let's say it makes the wrong choice. Then you will turn the – if that dog does not make the right decision and go to the right side of that gun station, it digs deeper for the left side, then I'll turn the pressure up a little bit more and try and – you can always go up. You can't come down. Agreed. The, the, the field still has to be a happy place to be. Some days it is, and some days it's not. That's a good quote, no though. Back, I like that. If you, if you give, say, for instance, you give a right hand back or a right hand angle back to put the dog on the right side of the gun station, then you're basically do the home. You're doing the homework for your kindergartner. Okay. Now let me ask you a question. He makes. You did it once. Called him in. No hands back. Makes the wrong choice. You up the pressure a little bit. A little no bit. Hands back. No hands back again. Makes yes. the wrong choice. Now as a trainer, I'm thinking, 
hey, what happened? What what's happening? Did he not? What's is are is he fading to the factors? Is he didn't see the mark well enough? Is he what what's the problem here? When do you have that? Instead of giving like you said the kindergartner and casting him to it, would you have your bird boy step out? Or yeah, be, like at what time would you say like all right, the dog needs help? I would probably have him step out and try a fake throw, a fake hand gesture. Uh, act like you're throwing the bird. You're, at this point, you're in a no-win situation. You just got to get out of it and go to another mark. Okay. And that brings up the biggest point is, as a trainer, when you leave the holding blind to go to the line in training, no matter how good it is or how bad it was, when you walk behind the holding blind with that dog, you leave all your feelings on the map. Does that make sense? No matter how bad it was or ugly, you don't hold any hard ill will toward that dog. Correct. As well as put take it out on the next dog. Exactly. And take it out <laughs> on the next if you if you have to put your transmitter in the truck, lock the keys in the truck and throw it in the pond, I do that. I'm with you. Yeah, you got to stay, you know, we've hammered on it in this podcast before. Patience is key, and no human is perfect. I'm not. I'm sure Lyle's, you know, been on the wrong side of patience. We all are that way, whether it's at home, at work, or with your dog. We all make mistakes, but our goal every day when we're training that dog is to stay patient. Yeah, and, and, you know, there's some dogs that, you know, Say, friends, you got three marks and two blinds, and you had to handle on all three marks, and the blinds were ugly. Some dogs, you go, you know what? You are the greatest animal in the world. You did a great job. Here's a pat on the head and and whatever. And then there's other dogs that you don't even – you don't if they front-footed three marks and lined two blinds, you wouldn't even acknowledge them. Right. They're, 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 they're like kids. You just got to figure out what kind of kid they are. Tough love or, or, or uh, you know, good job. All right. Now let's revisit that, why you don't rerun marks and blinds. Okay. If you rerun marks or you rerun blinds, this is my feeling. You're going to go to a hunt test. You're going to go to an SRS or a field trial where you don't see all the marks. But one thing you've been taught, don't go back to where you've been. Okay? you got to be able to point and shoot. Does that, does that make sense? Uh, so it makes you, sense to me, but maybe, you, you know, maybe define it a little more. So you're um, saying you as in the dog. Yes, you as in the dog. I don't rerun them. Okay. One, I throw so many marks in training. That I'll remember what the, I can't remember what it did an hour ago, but I remember what the dog did three weeks ago, right? And why? And like today, I learned a lot of things about a couple of dogs that I didn't think I didn't think they'd flare guns, and they did. So that's something we'll work on in the future. But it's kind of like a cookie jar. If you go to that cookie jar and there's cookies in there, and you want a cookie, where are you going to go? Back to the cookie jar. There you go. Because you, you, you couldn't remember where it was at, but you remember there was a bird over there. Right. Right. So if you've run, rerun marks, 
So I guess here's how I would maybe break it down for people. Let's say I have a dog and he struggled on a, a mark that was a cheating single and he cheated the bank. Now, sometimes I will say I sometimes do rerun it. I'll put, I'll, you know, make the bank hot. I'll, I'll teach. I'll I'll rerun that. I'll rerun that, but he never got the bird. See what I'm saying? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm with you. If I, if he gets the bird and I didn't, wasn't quick enough on the whistle or Dennis didn't get picked up quick enough. Okay. Then that's my fault, not the dog's fault, and you have to bite your tongue, go on, and set it up the next day or someplace right. else. So that's what your point would be. He wouldn't rerun the mark. He would go tomorrow to a different pond, yes. a different point, or whatever the case may be where that dog struggled the day before and say, hey, buddy, did you learn your lesson from yesterday? Let's try Correct. it again today. Correct. Right. And we try to incorporate, we didn't today, but 80, 80 to 90% of the time, there is a watermark in every one of my setups. Nice. Are you heavily, how do you balance big open water swims, get in and out, re-entry stuff, and cheating singles? Like I've actually, this summer I really made a focus on cheating singles. And like you said, almost every setup had a watermark that was a cheating single. And I had the best honest dogs I've ever seen at the end of the summer. Then you, you did it right. Wow. Thank you. I didn't mean it. <laughs> I like, uh, tap myself on the back, but is that something you do? Like maybe mine weren't as good at re-entries. Like w- tell me a little bit about breaking those concepts up and how uh, you can't, you, you cannot do enough cheating singles, corner cheaters, any of that. You can't do enough of them. And we could do another segment on just what I do with certain dogs, okay? Because if you've got a dog that's watery, that say, for instance, you got a cheating single and that dog barely gets wet, you take a deep breath and you hold your breath going, okay, if I get in this dog's butt, is he going to be in the middle of the pond? And that, like I say, that's another segment that when you're applying pressure around water, if the dog gets in perfect the second time, then you've applied the correct amount of pressure. If that dog gets in in the middle of the pond, you apply too much pressure. If you if the dog cheats the thing again, the, the corner, then you didn't apply enough pressure. I'm with you. How would you handle a dog that we call like taking it fat, right? So if you if they get in fat, uh, how would you handle that? Bring them back again? You just gonna have to. You're just gonna have to bite your tongue, handle, put the dog on the bird, or have your bird thrower. Hip, 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 and throw another bird, and go. Okay, I've, I've got a, I've made a major hole here. Getting in fat is probably worse than cheating the bank. Well, that's pretty cool, Lyle. So, you know, I think I, you hit the nail on the head. Let's do a segment in the future on water, where we can hit some of these bigger concepts for people for advanced work. Um, but in the meantime, we got another question from my buddy, uh, Richard Dorn, and he has jumped from the hunt test game to field trial game. And I think he wants to dabble in super retriever series as an amateur. And he wants to know about your, uh, your mind frame and how you strategize going to the line at an SRS, depending on the judges and how they're scoring 
and like handling versus letting a dog hunt. And those are like his examples. Like when you're going to a, a, an SRS and you look at a setup and you, you know the judges and stuff like that, how are you trying to win that thing? That's a real good question. And the SRS, as far as judging, um, is very similar to a baseball game, a football game. Uh, you have to figure out what those judges want or what that referee wants. Okay, can you get away with hand checks or can you get away with a high fastball or a low fastball? So it doesn't really matter what you what you want as a contestant. You've got to figure out in those scores how they're scoring. Okay, does that make sense? It, you've got to step back, and they'll give you the scores after five or ten dogs have run. You go, okay, these guys do not want you to hunt the bird. Right. They want you to make the area, put the dog on the bird, and get out of there. And and what people, what people are confused about is – at the end of the day, the best SRS dog is on the marks. No matter what what you may think, the dog makes the area fall, but you need to put them on it. Right. And you're going to have to run. You're going to have to run three, four, five events. Okay, you can't just go run one and you did well or you got your teeth kicked in. Okay, your your the chances of your teeth getting kicked in are pretty good. <laughs> I don't care because you look at it. We're like the first one in Georgia, Mr. Hall's place. There'll be all ducks there. Okay, but when you go to the next SRS, it'll all be, you know, rubber birds. Right. And it goes back to is when you go to McDonald's. Okay, you're not getting a Whopper, are you? I'm so, not. Exactly. The dog, the dog has to also learn the game in the sense of we're looking for rubber. We're not looking for feathers because everything you went to hunt tests or field trials. What are, what are you what are you looking for? Feathers. Pheasants and ducks. Yep. There you go. So you've got to you know transition that, and and then you've got to convince a dog that he wants to go four or five hundred yards for a rubber chicken. Well, let me right. tell you something. When that thing leaves that that guy's hands. He knows what it is. He knows if it's feathers or rubber. They ain't, right. They're not stupid. Okay. So, yeah, Richard, you just get in, take a deep breath, go up to whether it be me or, or some of the pros that are there and say, hey, I need some help. You know? What, so when, what you're, you do? when you're analyzing tests, and, and I feel like I do this at a, a weekend junior, senior, and master test, how I analyze a test is knowing the dog. Hey, this is this dog's down. Correct. And I'm going to try and set him up from the Correct. line how to be successful and make it to the next round. It may not be pretty, but as a handler, I'm strategic. So I would imagine, you know, with your record in Hunt Test and Super Retriever Series, you have strategy on your side. You have experience at the line. So when you go to a, a, the test dog and you're watching that test dog run, you're looking at factors and things. Talk to me about that a little bit. I mean, I know it depends on the dog, but maybe give like some of your, your big dogs that people have seen at the SRS, like Jack or River, 
and all right, Jack always turns to the left or whatever. Just talk to us about it. Well, that's it's a game plan, and you're exactly right. You, training those dogs day in and day out, eating, sleeping, and drinking with these dogs. Okay, you've got to know that dog's hunt pattern. Does he turn left? Is he an inside-out marker? Is he going to turn away from the danger on a water blind? Is he going to turn into the danger? What is his? What is that dog's mentality? And then what you want to do is if you're not running in the first three or four dogs, you want to go up there and you want to look in that catalog, say at a hunt test, and go, okay, dog number one is a monster. Okay, this is a Hall of Fame dog. This dog, you've watched him before. You know what kind of caliber this animal is. I watch that dog. Okay, and sometimes you you, you got to get two birds and quick handle and go on to the second series, because right. if you're running one of your bigger dogs earlier in the test and, and you have to handle, uh, it's going to be a long day for you. So you just got to go. I got to change my whole perspective on what we're doing. So to give everybody a little bit of a background on on our master national run, that exact thing happened to me when I lost Cruz in the third series. And Ember, my Jessie, did a very similar situation, if you will. Like, she faded to a factor just like Cruz did. But because I learned what Cruz did, like, what put her out, I was able to get Ember out of trouble and succeed. And then she kept to play, you know, play another round and then ended up doing well in passing. But it was, you know, to Lyle's point, you're watching other dogs and handlers and how they're succeeding or failing. And then knowing your dog and going in to win. Correct. And, and you know, if you're running a master national, you look at the flight, okay? And, and if you're running your first couple of master nationals or, or whatever it may be, what you want to do is you want to look in that flight and go, okay, here is the best handler and trainer in this flight. And every time he goes to the line, you better be standing there in the gallery watching him. How's he picking up the birds? And, and the wind conditions, factors change throughout the day so much in a master national. Now you just got you, you, to gotta study that thing. And it's, it, it's nine days of hell, okay, is what I call it. Nine days. Dude, I, had, I was sick to my stomach every day. <laughs> nine I days. Bubble guts for nine days. Oh, and I've ran 17 or 18, so I've lost three-fourths of a year of my life. I can't get back. But they were successful. <laughs> they were long, but it, it's in, and people go, why do you call it nine days of hell? Because it's day one, day two. You know, it's Tuesday. What's the date? Anybody that's running the thing don't have a clue what the date is. No. It's just Tuesday or Wednesday. Um but it is. You you watch those those top animals and, and you, you take, okay, this dog's gonna teach me what's going on, or this dog's gonna show me the pitfalls on the blind. Uh, but you, you go up and you, you watch those dogs or those handlers or, or or a top amateur handler that's got three or four monsters. You go, okay, I'm gonna watch this guy. I do. I agree. Couldn't agree more. All right, Kevin. I, uh, those are that's it for some of mine. We I'm going to skip some, and, and maybe Kevin and I can tackle them on a different podcast. But sure. Kevin's got some good ones. I remember 
you know, sending them to you, Kev. C. Ching, our boy, he sends questions all the time. He's got some great ones and, and a really nice dog. Um, I believe he's amateur, but, you know, has a nice dog, Lyle. So, Kev, why don't you rattle off some of the questions he had? Well, he he did have good, some good questions, and he does have a nice-looking dog. Uh, he at First, though, Lyle was interested if you're a Dodge, Ford, or a Chevy guy. <laughs> I used to GM Ford stores, okay? So every two years, I buy a new Ford one ton. And I had a friend of mine talk me into a GMC Denali that I had exactly six months. So I am a Ford Ford guy because I sold them and I had them, uh, and that's just my preference. Yeah. I mean, you know, if I didn't trade every two years, Dodge is starting to make a tremendous truck and the resale value but i trade every two years so ford has a strong resale value um you know it's kind of like you like a black dog or you like a yellow dog yeah so sure. it's just whatever you've had good there's good vehicles in every brand right so, but that's that's just my preference is a you know my goosenecks 24 holes and i just use a one ton diesel is what i pull it with you pull a with a one ton you pull 24 holes Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got a 24-hole Ainley. Jesus. I went to several years ago. I had I was using three-quarter tons, and I felt like I was just pulling the truck in half. So I went to a friend of mine and says, why don't you get a one-ton? They don't cost for a couple hundred bucks more, and when you get $80 million in a truck like they are today, it doesn't really matter. And, and I had a one-ton, and I go, okay. It made a difference. It was just a little more truck to pull that thing. Hmm. All right, so, so break it down because I'm a dummy. Is that a thirty-five hundred to a forty-five hundred? Yes, yes. So it's a, it's a one-ton uh, Ford is like a thirty-five hundred in a GMC or Chevy, and I can't think of what a Dodge is. Uh, okay. Because I have a thirty-five hundred, and I don't know what it is. I think that's a one-ton and a Ford. Yeah, I call it that because it's an F three fifty, so it's got to be the same thing. I'm with you. Okay, I got you now. That's a lot yeah, of truck, Colby though. Colby Williams. Yeah, Colby Williams told me the same thing. He said. If you're going between a 250 or a 350, get the 350. Well, he's one of my mentor children, so he finally listened to me. I told him to quit buying a three-quarter ton. Yeah. <laughs> and then I put a 75-gallon tank in the bed of the truck because it's only got like a 25-gallon tank in that thing. Really? Man. A little bitty thing. A little bitty thing. All right, um, Kev. He also asked about Ainley Mountaintop or gear skin. What do you got? You said that Well, Ainley, he just said right? Ainley. Yeah, and I got a, I ordered, well, I got it, it's, it'll be down here next week. I ordered a 12-hole Ainley trailer to pull because I'm getting old and I don't want to run 20-some dogs at a hunt desk anymore. I want to run about 12, 14. So it, it's Jane and Chad and Ron and I are extremely close friends, okay? Um you know how everybody talks about the green monster whistle and they say this whistle is this and that. Yep. Just as good as you got your answer. Right. If you say it's just as good as an aiming, well, it's not. So right. that's the workmanship in an Ainley. Um, yeah, I'm trying to be politically correct. That's my <laughs> preference. Okay? I'm with you. Yeah, uh, enough said. You know, enough and it, and it depends, too. Is okay, I'm closer to Ainley than I am Deerskin or Mountaintop. I mean, so, I mean, I'm five hours from 
from Ainley's, five or six hours. So that makes a difference. And, and I know the other two companies uh, are, are building a better quality product because of the standards. You know, it's like dog training. The standards gotten higher. Right. So, well, when you right. want to sell that 24-hole, call me first, please. <laughs> you know, the, the thing is, it, it's funny. I, I didn't even have it. I had two or three pro trainers go, how long do you think you'll keep it? I said, oh, four or five years. Well, call me. I said, and in the and I clean it inside and out, and it's spotless, and you know it's where the dog stays or rides. So I mean, that's that's the thing is, you take care of this stuff; it'll bring about what you what you gave for it. And, Absolutely, and, uh, they hold their value like no. They they're like a Toyota pickup. I mean, you know, oh my, and you know, my new twelve hole Ainley, it's kind of like Chad was kind of giving me a little bit of hard time. He goes, "This has got a lot on it." I said, yeah, you know, thousand dollar stereo system and. I got to stand in front of that thing. I want to listen to something. And, uh, he goes, is this the last one I'm building for you? I said, well, you just never know, do you, Chad? So I thought he was, he was going to give me a hard time. With that. But, Real quick, I did have somebody ask what kind of music you listen to. <laughs> so I guess oh, I'll tell you what. You know, the Super Bowl Sunday, and and I got Sirius Radio in the truck and the trailer, and I go, I've I, – my ears are bleeding. I'm so I'm, I'm footballed out. Let's just play the game and get it over with. So, you know, I listen to a lot of country music. Uh, I listen to 810 when I'm home, the sports radio, and I can take a few days of that. So it, it's, it, it's, I just go through a bunch of them, to be honest with you. Yeah. Cool. And, uh, you know, I could tell you, I could tell you a Marshall Mathis story that would blow your mind, but uh, that would be, uh, off the records. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. All right, Kevin. Uh, we had a we had a good question. I know uh, their name has kind of been brought up a couple times, but uh, Pablo Lupus asked if you have any river or jack pups in training right now. Jack was uh, sterile, and Jack was never bred. Um, river passed away several years ago. Um, I do have some coot semen. I think I've got two breedings of coot left. Um, Jack was a Fargo son, and I have four Fargo sons and daughters on my truck. Um, and and that brings up, you know, someone asked that question. The guy asked me the day. I've got 24 holes in my truck, and of the 24 dogs on my truck, there is one living sire and he's retired wow old blood still the best go into that for me for a second old blood is still the best what do you mean by it well genetics 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 okay we can train a dog to go 200 yards on a mark Genetics makes him go four to six hundred. Does that make sense? It, yeah. It, it's like Remy and Charlie are out of Fargo. They're nine years old, and you could run them back to back every day, and they will do almost the identical work. It blows your mind. So when you say old blood, define that. Cosmo. And, and like, Cosmo. Yeah. Shaq. Fargo, 
Oh, let me run down this. Uh, now, now, how, like, what time frame were those dogs around? Probably right? been dead probably 20, 25 years. Jesus. Yeah. How long does, like, the, the semen Forever. stay? Well, that makes sense, I guess. Freeze it up. You keep yeah, nitrogen. Like awesome yeah, keep the night, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we. You uh, probably got a hell of a freezer, Lyle. I got a lot. I've got a lot of. Uh, I've got a lot of priceless semen stored. Hey, Me you too. Heard it here first. Me too, Lyle. <laughs> yeah, one of my one of my close friends and clients. Uh, he, I think we got fifteen or twenty a spree out of the woods semen, uh-huh. tiger semen. Nice Creek robbers, Creek robbers sibling. So yeah, you just take the the. You know, I'm not saying there's not some some great dogs living today. I'm not saying that, but go look and see what they're out of. Yeah, no, they're that out makes of those sense. dogs. Yeah, it, it's just you know everything. Even you know, Mike Thardy made comments so everything is genetic. You know, it's kind of like when a guy calls me about evaluating a dog or a dog's for sale. I go, is he a land seeker? Or is he a water seeker? Because I got plenty of land seekers. Mm-hmm. And and everything from the water to line manners to w- what you do to your kennel as far as painting it or clean cleanliness, everything is genetic. I had a buddy that said he's never met a field champion who shit in his kennel. That you know what. Um, one of the top field trial trainers in the country is retired. You got about one accident. And if you did it on purpose, you probably weren't going to be there much longer. Now, every yep. everybody has an – we know when a dog has an accident, a crate or a trailer. You just you – just, it, it happens. Stomach's right. upset. You're riding. But that that's, that is a true – yeah. Everyone – every one of those 24 dogs in my truck is a house dog. Every one of them. Cool. Yeah, same with my truck. Yeah. Same with my truck. Everybody is a couch potato family dog and mm-hmm. plays a game or just taunts. Yeah, um, it's that, – that's – yeah, life's easier. Yep. All right, go ahead, Kev. What else you got? We had a good one uh, from Silver City Outdoors. Appreciate the question and, and uh, you know, following along. But they said that their dog is not necessarily crazy about bumpers – absolutely loves going out hunting how do you increase the driving a dog when you're training to to get them jacked up to learn more if they don't necessarily love bumpers okay in our in our training setups you always want to throw if you if you're not throwing if you're mixing birds and atbs and tangle free and all this stuff okay when a dog gets older you can do this but You'll want to throw shackle birds, dead birds, flyers on the long bird. Drive. But what we do in training, it doesn't matter if I throw you a pheasant or I throw you a ATB or I throw you a dead bird, you better go get it with the same ump. And if you. you come and if you come and train with us, those dogs of mine, they know what birds are birds or whatever. And a lot of times we'll trick you. We'll throw an ATB up close to a dead bird long or a flyer, or we'll throw birds up front to cause a scent pattern 
and then drive you long with, with rubber. So, yeah, it's just something you just have to work through in training. Sure. You know, we, we had a couple of dogs. It's funny. We had a couple of young dogs that we know hunt, and they're killers on cripples. Okay? Well, the last two or three days we've shot flyers, and this particular dog goes out, and we didn't kill it. She won't pick it up. Really? Yeah. But you don't apply pressure. You just walk out and say, hunt it up, hunt it, and get the dog excited. Sure. She finally picked up that live cripple and come in. So when I talk to the owner, I'm going to say, you must be a killer. You must <laughs> kill every bird. You must kill every bird you shoot. Because evidently you don't have no cripples because she won't pick them up. That's interesting. And Not you, uncommon. No. And, and Okay, how many times in a hunt test is a bird cripple on a flyer? Uh, High percentage. And how many have you seen where the dog goes out and stares at it or runs back? Yeah, yeah, and you're out. Yep. But, no, it, it's like uh, Rich was there when this dog did it, and he goes, I can't believe – I've seen that dog pick up cripples. I said, well, she ain't pick – she's had two live flyers, and she ain't picked up either one of them without me walking all the way out there. But I told him, I said, do not, do not, do not, do not apply pressure on that cripple bird. All right, I agree. Go ahead and you, explain why. What, what you're going to do is if you go out there and you, you get upset, uh, you, you, it's a band-aid. You're just going to be patient and work through it. It isn't going to be fixed overnight. I'm going to force fetch you on live birds. That ain't going to work. That ain't going to work. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree take, more. Yeah, just take a deep breath. Sometimes we've got to take a deep breath and quit getting all upset and, you know, you know, take a deep breath and say, okay. You know, we throw a lot of we throw a lot of shackle birds. How do you shackle them? Uh, you can put a sock over their head, or you can take, you know, that wrap stuff and put over their over their eyes, and they'll yep. they'll fly and just land and stay. Yep, yep, that's what I do too. Socks a yeah, good trick, and it's something you have to do that uh, because you're going to see it. But it also, if you've got a dog that doesn't want to go to the long bird. Throw banny chickens or throw live flyers like that. That'll get you out there. Very good. What else you got? Let's do two more, Kev. Uh, two good ones. Yeah. Uh, let's see. You mentioned old blood and, and things like that. Was there a favorite stud dog of yours that have produced some of your most favorite dogs to train? This one was from our buddy, C. Ching 83. Um, <clears throat> Fargo. Um, I had great success with Rebel with the Cause, Sons and Daughters. Um, let's see. Lean Mac dogs. I've got two Lean Mac dogs on my truck. Uh, they're different. It, it takes, they're different. They're, they're a little bit odd individuals. Um, I can relate to that, but what, uh, <laughs> what, 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 what makes like them a little bit family. odd? Yeah. Hey, whatever. What uh? What do you mean by uh, you know kind of odd individuals? Kind of yeah. Okay. What what you do to her, you don't do to somebody else, and vice versa. Hmm. Can you give me an example? Go, uh, like she sets funny. You she works you on the line. She sets at an angle, cockeyed. So you got to keep pulling her and pulling her and pulling her. Uh, and the and if you're putting pressure on the line with her, it gets worse. 
Um, so you kind of just got to meet in the middle a little bit. Yeah, you you got to compromise. <laughs> That's the best way to put it. Um, I got two or three Holland uh, kids on my truck. Holland's not passed away, but he's retired. Uh, What's his registered name? Two Marks Holiday. Yeah. Great animal. What kind of dog is that? He was a male that Ed Acock owns. Phenomenal animal. Tremendous, tremendously bred. And, and you know, a lot of times you got to remember, everybody talks about the sire. Okay. But if you go down my truck and look at the females that these dogs of mine are out of, they're female. the females were unbelievable. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and when you're looking at that, first look at the female before you worry about the male. If you don't like the female, then there's no use of going to your father. Do you remember Rex Bell? Hmm. He owned uh, Rev and Blue Jeans. Yes. Yes. Okay. Sure. So Rev, or excuse me, Rex has passed, and he, I, he had, you know, drinks with us at night when I was living at Rhett's place, and he always talked about Debbie does ducks. Yes. And he's like, man, if if there's any pedigree with her anywhere in that, that's the one. And, and I'll, I'll never forget it. It's just funny. You know, you look at a pedigree, and you're like, oh, there she is. Um, and it's rare now because she's so far back. But, right. But, but Rex was the same. He was looking at the bitch line just as much as he looked at the sire line. Well, and it's, it's hard because a lot of those great bitches, you know, are not bred. And you take my truck, you know, Indy's been bred one time. And Jordan's four or five, and she's a monster, and she probably will not be bred. And it's just my guys on my truck don't care about puppies; they care about performance. And you know that's that's just you know. But no, that that female line, you know, you take some of these, you know, Queasy that Judy Acock owns. You know, oh, there's some great great females that produced. And you know, you you take a lot of those lines. You take like one of the greatest leaders of all time was, you know, Hattie McBun, you know, to lean back. Uh, I think it was lean. No, it produced. Yeah, it was produced tiger and gates and all those, you know, and you, you know, you just take, you know, Sheena river Chavez and, you know, his, you know, that Sheena river, no surprise was a female that was unbelievable, you know, and, you know, you just take so many of those great, great females and, and, and what you run into is, is there is so much about some of those dogs that good and bad, the normal person wouldn't, would not know because it was a kept secret. I'm with you. You know, there, there was a dog on the national a couple of years ago that was on a particular pro's truck and the dog was so mean that he goes, I've had it. And then, and he said, I'm done. You couldn't air him with anybody. You couldn't do anything. It was me. I mean, me, me. And he went to another pro and then won the national with him. And the, and the dog is a tremendous producing dog, but he, he'll throw it. He'll throw, he'll throw mean. He'll throw. Yeah. And it, it's just, there's just so much of that. I mean, there's so many stories, you know, you know, you right. can do another one on, 
you know, I'm old and I've been around. Who to stay away from? (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's, but you've got to look at, there's, there's two dogs on my truck right now that I'm not going to say who they are, but one of them is, is he is a crown contender. Mm -hmm. Okay. And he, he is a little ouchy, but he is a creature of his environment. Okay. And the other one was raised with love and socialization and, and had the best young dog trainers, you know, the best young dog trainer in the country train him. Then he went to the best trainer in the country, you know, and, and <laughs> you mean you No, <laughs> no, I'm just trying to, I'm just, he just, he's a little more foreign. Uh, if I said who owned him, everybody, well, he wasn't on my truck, so I don't know. Yeah. Uh, he, he was, uh, I told this gentleman, I said, you got too many good ones. Yeah. You know, and I said, you're getting old and I'm not going to pay you for who you are. So give me a decent price on the dog and, and him and I give each other a hard time anyway. And, and cool. that's how I got him. But the dog has a great personality, but it, it it's, that's what it brings down to is socialization of some of these dogs. You know? Sure. Oh. Who's the top producer right now that's living in your mind? Woo. Hmm. Huh. I'd say the dog's dead. Still dead. Um, you know, there's just like think about it. You got Juice. You got Mickey. I mean, there's there's some good ones that are producing nice puppies. Is there anybody that's living right now that you're seeing on Facebook that's getting bred and people could kind of keep an eye out for? Well. That Mickey dog that Robbie Bickley owns, I mean, that that was a you know top open an amateur dog last year. Uh, he's bred one of my friends who I run Dixie for for Brian. Uh, that was a breeding that Rita Jones put together, and Dixie's out of Clooney. Uh, I think Clooney is going to produce. Uh, but but Bob here, let's look at this. Kevin, look at this. Okay. Coot produced multiple master hunters, tons of them, okay? But he wasn't bred to anything that wasn't a master hunter or more. Does that make sense? So, you know, again, we're stressing what male are we looking at. Well, it depends on what that female's out of. Sure. You know, we did a breeding the other day, David did, at a Megan who's out of two FCAFCs out of, dead dogs galore and we bred her to tiger you want to talk about old old pedigree Whew. right i mean them dogs and you know it, it's just but she's an animal you know uh so yeah there's just there's several nice males i'm gonna miss them but you know that flex dog i'd like to a lot of people like his puppies i'd like to see him run they say he's a monster yeah um <laughs> excuse me uh but there's there's probably five or six of them out there, but those five or six, go look what they're out of. Right. Yeah. Chopper. You're damn right. They're they're dead. I mean they're or the bitch was an FCA FC out of Grady or out of a national champion or you know, you you dig a little deeper and then, you know, keep digging. I agree. Well, Lyle, I'd like to kind of end on that note because you and I both know we're going to do this again. 
Absolutely. I had I had an absolute blast talking with you and getting to know your background. And next time we're going to dig more into some advanced training. Um, but I'd like to wish you, your dogs, and your family a great 2020. I'm excited to see you around the circuit. And Kevin, thank you for you know being there with us and uh, asking questions as well. Everybody, thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please click subscribe. Please click five stars. Please give us a follow. Lyle, tell everybody where they can follow along with you and your kennel. Sure. I, we're on Instagram and Facebook and uh, under Castile Creek Kennels. And what we try to do is we try and do a video setup of what I do. And then what we do is we try and do a video setup of our young dogs. And I don't edit it. I do it one time and I'm done. So it, it's it's not real good, but I keep doing it because people say they like it. And, you know, if we can help somebody, that that's at the end of the day, I mean, I'll help anybody. Just pick up a phone and call me. You know, it may not be right, but it'll be my, my suggestion for you. Cool. Well, Lyle, thank you so much for being a part of the Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles, my man. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and I'll see you around. Hey, do me a solid. If you enjoy the show, if you enjoy our Instagram, if we've helped you at all, join patreon.com forward slash lone duck outfitters. If you do it before September of 2023, you're going to enter to win a hunt with me and Kevin and a bunch of other Patreon members down in Missouri. We're going to smack some ducks, have some fun, do a seminar with our dogs and have a great time. But jump into patreon.com forward slash lone duck outfitters. Links in the description and join the community that helps me help you help your dog. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.